seated. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to uh, John chapter 20, if you would, John chapter 20. This is uh, my 12th Easter since I've been at Beaverton Foursquare, and I was looking over the last 11 Easter's, and I have never once in 11 years on Easter looked at one of the passages of Scripture that directly deals with the morning of the resurrection at the empty tomb. We talk about the resurrection and all of its implications in our daily life and some of the post-resurrection experiences and all the different texts that talk about the daily reality of that. But this morning I want to look at an iconic uh, passage that deals specifically and, and directly with the uh, with the empty tomb. If you look in the Bible in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were four of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were the four disciples, original disciples of Jesus, and they all wrote uh, a biography of Jesus' life and ministry. And each one of them come at it from a different angle and gives us a different vantage point into who Jesus is and why he came and what he accomplished, um, filling in little gaps, telling different nuances of the different stories and teachings. But all of them devote the bulk of their gospel to the last week of the life of Jesus. Because all that Jesus taught and all that he did was significant, but it was culminated and validated in his death and resurrection. That's why he came. And that's what is becoming real in our life today. And so the bulk of what we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, and John deal with this issue. And when you talk about Easter, I mean, I, I don't know what your traditions are in Easter. I mean, growing up, my mom always dressed us in pink on Easter. I have, three, I have two brothers and a sister, and I could never... Now, this was pre-Miami Vice, so pink wasn't cool yet. And, um, and I, I was like pink suspenders, pink bow tie, pink shirt, always like pink, pink, pink. I'm, last night I said that, and a guy came up after the service. He's a big guy. He's got a pink shirt on. Got a little purple tie with pink stripes in it. He's got three boys and they're all dressed in pink. <laughs> and he said, Can you talk to my wife? And uh, <laughs> I said, I don't care how many times they say it, real men wear pink. He goes, Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, I always wanted one thing as a kid. I wanted an Easter chocolate Easter bunny that wasn't hollow. That's all I ever wanted. I just. <laughs> You know, every year it's like, oh, it's hollow, and my dad, you know, it's because the tomb was empty, so the hollow, it's like, <laughs> no, it's not, it's because you're cheap, that's, that's what it is. And, but you know, they're going to celebrate new life and new beginnings and the springtime that represents, and, and we, all that about Easter, the association of, the, of all the things that are the accoutrements of the season, but when you go to the first morning of the resurrection, it was something totally different. It was weeping. There, were, there was crying. There was tears. There was that sense that something had died that was a hope, a dream, a, a movement ended, and, and, and what we had trusted in no longer exists, and there was the, the despair that accompanied that. And nobody is on that third day anticipating that the tomb would be empty even though Jesus said again and again, I will die and on the third day I will raise again. They, they, they didn't believe that there would be a resurrection for the same reason so many people do today. Our worldviews don't make room for the possibility that dead people become alive again. There, there's this view of the afterlife and death and everything, but it doesn't include that somebody would be dead and buried and three days later they would be back. Dead people stay dead. 
That was, that was why they couldn't believe it, even though Jesus said again and again, and he never lied to them. Everything he did, he said he would do, he accomplished. There was no incongruency between his words and his actions. He, he, he said he would, and he had the power and the ability to do what he said. But nobody came to the tomb believing that. So I want you to look in verse 1 of John chapter 20, and we're going to read this in two sections, and hopefully it'll be a little shorter than the last two services. Uh, we have given ourselves some extra time between this service and the next service, but I'm being reminded after every service by the team, you need to really shorten your sermon. It's like, hey, who signs your paycheck? You know, it's like, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't. And I don't. I, my name's not even on it, so don't get me there. It's like, hey, uh, no, I appreciate the feedback. They're, they're keeping me on track. Hey, let's, so let's quit wasting time. Come on, let's go. The first verse 1, John 20, verse 1. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running, and you'll notice a lot of running going on in this story. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Now, this is John's gospel he's writing, and whenever he writes himself in the story, references himself in the story, it's always in the third person. He's always, he doesn't say, an I, John, he'll say, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So that's how he identifies himself in the story. So when you see that in the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, he's kind of like, he was secure in that, and that's, he, it's not like, hey, and the one with the big nose or the bad, it was like the one that Jesus loved. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. She didn't, she wasn't expecting resurrection. She only drew a conclusion that somebody must have taken the body. Verse three, so Peter and the other disciple started running for the tomb. Look at this. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing to write into the story? It's kind of like, and the resurrection, the king of all ages, the creator of the heaven and the earth was put in a tomb, and on that morning, I ran fast. I, 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 I run faster than Peter, and thanks for that little tidbit. And Verse 5, and he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. These are the eyewitness accounts. Finally, the other disciple, who, who reached the tomb first, in case you didn't catch it the first time, uh, also went inside and he looked and he believed. He's the first person to officially believe as a result of the empty tomb. Mark's gospel says that Peter ran and looked and then went home wondering about what he saw. Later, he would have his moment of belief. Verse nine, and they still not, uh, did not understand from scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead, had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. We're gonna stop there. We're gonna come back and finish reading in a few minutes. I want to just mention something about Peter because I think there's a lot of us that could identify and relate to Peter in this story. When you look at the last encounter we had with Peter, the, the last time he was in the story, you, you can go to Matthew 26, and it's this encounter where, where Peter is looking 
at Jesus from across the courtyard, and he had just denied Jesus for the third time. A little girl had said to him, you're one of Jesus' followers, aren't you? And he denied it, and he began to cuss, and he, he began to say, I don't even know the guy, and he distanced himself. He turned on Jesus. He betrayed Jesus, even when hours earlier he said he never would. Everyone else will fall away, Jesus, but I'm gonna be there. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows for the third time, you will have denied me. Before the rooster crows, you will have denied me for the third time. And when that rooster crowed and he had denied Jesus for the third time, it says that their eyes, there's another place where it says their eyes met from across the courtyard and then Peter, here it says he went and he wept bitterly. That's how the story ends for Peter. Then Jesus was crucified and buried. And now these women come back. The tomb's empty. He gets up and he sprints as fast as a lumbering fisherman can run. And he's booking it for the tomb. Socially, that's, that's not acceptable. That's an embarrassing thing in that culture is to run publicly and he's running to the tomb and, you know, and here comes John, and just running by him. And, but why, why did Peter, why is it so, why did he run? Because when Peter in the story was left off, he was trapped in this moment of failure. He was trapped in this moment of betrayal. He was trapped in this moment of guilt and shame because he had fallen short. Underneath a lot of guilt is anger, which is primarily directed at ourselves. I'm guilty because I failed even my own expectations of me, let alone other people. There's something in our hearts that, that, that we, we know when we betray trust. We know when we hurt others. We know when we hurt ourselves. We know when we grieve the heart of God and we, we, we sin against our maker. We, we, we know that. And, and because of that, there's this weight that we carry and people spend their lives trying to do something with that weight. How do I, how do I right a wrong? And so for the, 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 the resurrection, for the tomb to be empty, it held a couple of possibilities to Peter. It, mean, it means possibly that, that there is gonna be redemption. There is something possible or, or something else. So he, 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 he runs to the tomb. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we're still trapped in our sins because the wages of sin is death that if there is no resurrection, there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness of sin. It means that the death of Jesus on the cross was in vain. It's futile to have faith in something that the foundation of it was Jesus' own proclamation that he would rise again. Guilt is this issue of I owe something that I can't pay back. There's this debt-debtor relationship. It's like, I, I've betrayed you, I've, I've, I've hurt you, I've lied to you, I've gossiped about you, I, I broke a promise, I wasn't there when I said I would be, and you, 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 I stole from you, I took from you, I gossiped about you. You, you. There's so many things that we do and hurt each other, and there's this inequity, that it, this inequality that exists in a relationship because of it, and how do you make that right? That's true of our relationship with God as well. How do you right a wrong? How do you pay back what you can't pay back? I was talking to a dad once who had worked 15, 16 hours of days, uh, seven days a week for a big chunk of his life, missed most of his childhood, his children's childhood, and now he's trying to, in the later years kind of reconnect and reconcile, and they're bitter against him, and he says, how can I give them back what I can never give them back? 
even, I, I want to, but I can't go back in time. I was talking to a lady with tears streaming down her face saying she was confessing adultery and she, the broken, the breach of trust in her relationship with her husband, and she goes, I can't undo that. How can I fix that? How can I right that wrong? Talking to a young man who was kicked out of a military academy for cheating. He goes, I don't know what got into me. He goes, I wish I could go back. And when we think about a relationship and our life in God, there's this, there's this debt, debtor relationship. One of the things that I've noticed about Jesus in the scripture is he never leverages and dispenses guilt in our lives. If anybody could, he could, because he was the guiltless one. Guilty people leverage guilt in other people's lives, but Jesus didn't. And he could have come and he could have said, guilty, 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 woo, really guilty, 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 guilty. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of people, but he didn't. Because our own sin condemns us before God. In John 3, 17, Jesus says, for, the, for God did not send the Son of Man into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. J Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. We're already, our own sins do that. But Jesus came into the world to rescue. Jesus came into the world to buy back that which was lost. Jesus came to reconcile that which was broken and make whole again that which was lost and to make all things new. Ultimately, even creation itself. See, in Mark's gospel, Jesus said to the women, go tell the disciples, now listen to this, and Peter too. Go tell Peter. Singles Peter out. Why? Because he, of all of them, would have been under the biggest burden of guilt and shame for his failure. And he was probably wondering, it's probably like, I got two directions I can run. I can run to Jesus and take my chances with him, or I can run away from him and live under the weight of this guilt and shame. So he took his chances and he ran towards the empty tomb because do, one of the questions everybody has to answer is, where do I stand with a, with a holy God? Where do I, how do I measure up? What, what's the basis of my rightness before that God? Because all of our lapses and failures kind of beg the question, how can I be sure that they can be made right? Or how can I be sure that when I face death, I'm not going to end in judgment? That's a question that's legit. There's a man named Cornelius Anderson. In the year 2000, he was arrested and convicted of burglary in the state of Missouri. And after his conviction, the judge said, I want you to go home and wait instructions and then report to prison. But the instructions never came. And he waited and he waited and the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years. And during that period of time, he got married. He had three children. He was raising his children. He learned a trade, started a business, turned his life around, was paying his taxes, was an upstanding citizen. And then 13 years later in July of 2013, the Missouri Department of Corrections discovered their mistake and error. And so they sent a SWAT team with fully automatic weapons to his house and pounded on the door and now he's serving a sentence in the Missouri State Penitentiary. But here's the interesting part, and I ripped this out of an article when I was reading it once and threw it in the file and was thinking of it, but I, I, this is the part that was interesting to me. His attorney said this, I told him that one day they were gonna come for you and so that you need to be ready. And I wonder if that's what life would be like without Easter. We all want to make things right that are wrong. We all want to fix that which is broken. We all want to turn life around. We want a new beginning. But in the back of our minds, we know, I, I can't ever make things right to the degree that 
the wrong has occurred and there's this thing that languishes back there because we know of our sin and we know of our guilt and we wonder if one day justice is going to show up and say it's time for you to own up to what you've done. But because of Easter, we're free from that because now we're under the grace of God. We're set free from that condemnation because guilt says, I owe something that I can't repay. And Jesus isn't into guilting. Jesus is into saving. And, and, and when we think, I've, I've wrecked our home or I've hurt our marriage or I've hurt our relationship, I lied about you, or whatever it would be, both public or private, of issues in our life, we know that there's something unpaid. And so this is why the resurrection matters because it's such a defeating thing to think of guilt apart from grace. Listen to what Jesus said hanging on the cross in John 19. When he had received the drink, they put some vinegar on a sponge and put it up to his lips, and Jesus said, these are the last words of Jesus at the crucifixion. He says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That word, it is finished, is a Greek word we call, it's tetelestai. And the, 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 the grammar of the word, the, it implies that there's this past factual event that is still having a perpetual effect today in our lives. So when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, that word literally, Aramaic means paid in full. It's paid. You don't owe God because you could never pay back God. So Jesus paid the debt for us. In God's big scheme and plan and grand uh, cosmic event to redeem all of creation, Jesus bore on himself the penalty of our sin and the consequences of our sin and the guilt of our sin, the one who was guiltless and sinless, so this exchange could take place so that for his purity and sinless life, I can exchange my broken sinful life and I can experience resurrection newness in life. So when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. That's grace. When you're in Christ, he looks at you and he sees no record of wrong. He sees no sin because that was nailed to the cross at Jesus in his death. And that life is buried with Christ, that old life of sin. That's what water baptism is a picture of and then we're raised up as a new creation in Christ. That's how God views you. That's why we can be in heaven in the presence of a holy God because we're righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The eternal debt for sin has been paid in full. You can't add to it. You can't, through your good works, through your church attendance, through your whatever, be good enough. Jesus paid it. All we can do is receive it. But the resurrection is the receipt for the transaction. It proves that the payment was sufficient. That's why the scripture says there remains no more debt that can be paid. So that's why religious, religion is so insidious. It says that you have to pay the gospel is good news. It's true news, but it's good news because Jesus paid. I, I don't want to promote stores or, or businesses. It's unfair to do so, but I was in a store, and um, they sell in bulk, and it, it rhymes with Bosco. And um, <laughs> uh, you know that, kind of how that works. You buy something, and I love that store, but Sandy doesn't like me to go there. You know, she'll go, hey, Randy, get some salsa and some toilet paper and some, maybe some printing paper and and I come out with a canoe, you know, or something, you know, I just can't help myself, so. But once I was getting some stuff and I, I went to exit, and before you can exit, you have to show them the receipt, right? And they've got the marker and they'll draw a smiley face or a check or they'll look and go, oh yeah, you've paid. The receipt proves you paid. 
I don't know how this happened, but from there to there, I lost the receipt. Just in that little, from there to there. And I couldn't find it, and I kept just kind of letting people go by. And finally, I said to the lady, I said, I, I paid for this, but I can't find my receipt. And she goes, well, then there's no proof that you paid. I go, but I did pay. Well, she goes, how will I know that you paid? Um, I'm Pastor Randy. And uh, no, like, <laughs> I held no water with her. She could have cared less, you know. So there I was, you know, shame walking back to the, uh, finally, the checkout the person who checked me out, she validated that I had paid, but you know what the resurrection is? The resurrection is the receipt. It's the payment. It's, it's been paid. Because if Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, we're still, he has no triumph. He has no, he, he is not victorious over life or death. But the very fact of his resurrection proves that we don't have to stay trapped in guilt and sin, that we can walk in freedom and forgiveness. He makes all things new. Michael Bloomberg, when he was leaving office, was interviewed by the New York Times, and Mayor Bloomberg was talking about the works that he had done in regards to gun control and trying to deal with the obesity pandemic in the city, and then he said these words. He said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now think about that for a moment. So I shuddered. I just thought, because that's, that's what keeps us from salvation, pride and self-righteousness. Imagine him standing for a holy God and, okay, the basis for your, and he's like, I reduce the size of sodas. God's like, you come on in you whoa mother Teresa take a back seat right here cause look at who's coming in uh, angels soda reduction wow but the Bible says all of us who would hold up our own merits in comparison to who God is and his righteousness would fall short because sin, sin is an archery term. It's like you aimed at a target and you missed it and you fell short and all of us fell short. And as ludicrous as that would be to say, this is my entrance pass, I'm gonna bank on Jesus having paid it. So the question is, who's gonna pay? What direction are you running? And we've gone long, so I'm gonna really, really accelerate for this second part. So I wanna talk about Mary for a moment. Would you look at verse 11? Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, and one, of, one was at the head and the other was at the foot, and they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. So at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, and that's a, that sounds harsh, woman, it's, it's a tender, it's an endear, it's kind of, sister, dear, it has that kind of, it's just translated woman, but woman, why are you crying? Now look at this next question. Who is it that you're looking for? Two questions he asks. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Yeah, Milo Mary, I'll go pack the body around. Just tell me where you, where you hit him. Verse 16, and Jesus said to her, look at what is the only thing he says. He says her name. Mary. 
Literally, he uses her Aramaic name. He says, Miriam. He knows who she is. Instantly, she recognizes that voice, and she turned towards him. Peter ran to the tomb. She turns towards Jesus. This is where life begins. The minute you run to Jesus and turn to Jesus, this is where life starts. And she cried out, Rabboni, in Aramaic, which means my teacher, my, my Lord. The question, why are you crying? It is significant that these women would have been at the tomb. If you were making this story up in that patriarchal society, you would have never written women in as the first witnesses of the resurrection. You would lose all credibility because in that day, in that culture and time, women couldn't even testify in court. They were seen as unreliable witnesses, one step above shepherds. And the reason that she's mentioned in the story as the first eyewitness of the resurrection is because she was. And some people think it's because a group of women understood that men took Jesus off the cross and prepared his body for burial, so they needed to go and do it, redo it. Uh, that's why they were headed to the cross. But, uh, but it, her name is Mary Magdalene, and Magdala, Magdalene isn't her last name. It's, it's where she's from. She's from Magdala, a Roman, Roman resort town in the, the, the Sea of Galilee, kind of like Cancun at spring break. It was kind of a wild place. She was Mary from Magdala, like I'm Remington from Gillette, Wyoming. And, uh, and look at verse eight, or 1 and 2 of Luke 8. Listen real quickly. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 disciples were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. This is a woman with a messed up past. This is a woman with a story. Hers wasn't private. Hers was public. Later it says that she and a group of women were part of the disciples that followed Jesus and supported Jesus financially in his life and ministry. She, she was the last one at the cross and she was the first one at the tomb because Jesus changed her life. She was delivered. She was set free. And she loved Jesus. And she followed Jesus. And her condition was probably well known to others, but I love this about Jesus. He, he doesn't care about the pedigree degree. He doesn't care about your bank account. He doesn't care about your education. He doesn't care about all those things. I mean, he cares. He cares about you. But he doesn't measure people how we measure people. And he went to those who would not be the pillar of society, those that might be on the margins. And she was the first person to be a witness to this new era, the springtime that was breaking into the gray winter of the world, foreshadowing a resurrection of all things that was to come. She was the one who was going to see that. She was the first witness to that. And so Jesus asked her a question. She's crying because the one that she trusted in, the one that she had put her hope and confidence in, he wasn't there. And she, she does what many of us do. When we go to the graveside of somebody that we love and tears flow and we experience grief and loss, Jesus says, why are you crying? Now, I've always been taught, men, you're not supposed to ask that question. If your wife's crying, you don't say, why, why are you crying? I mean, I've filtered this through my grid and understanding, and I've come to the conclusion you shouldn't be crying about that. I mean, the answer is only going to perplex you more if you ask that question, so don't, don't ask that question. Why are you crying? Sounds so insensitive. It's just going to make her cry more, probably. But I, I, was a, I had a chance to do a wedding a couple weeks ago. Many of you know Gail Potter, my assistant. Her daughter, Katie, got married, and Katie's nephew, Gail's grandson, was the ring bearer. He was four years old. You know, he's this great little guy. Justin comes walking down the aisle, the gorilla walk. And 
stands up there with the other guys and grandma's right there on the front row, the mother of the bride. And at some point in the service, the ceremony, Gail's crying. She's the mother of the bride crying. And Colton's four and he's looking around going, and he leans, kind of took a few steps forward and he said, Grandma Gail, are you crying? <laughs> like what in the world could possibly merit, did somebody steal a cupcake, what? And he was kind of like coming to her, why are you crying? And, and his dad sitting next to her said, Colton, go back, go back. And he was like, what, what? It's like, go back, what? And Colton's older brother sitting next to him said, Colton, be quiet. And he goes, no, you be quiet. That's <laughs> <So> like, <laughs> it's like, perfect, this is classic. <laughs> Great little guy, he was my hero after that, boom. See, we tend to shy away from emotion, and Jesus kind of drilled into it a little bit because it became this on-ramp of sorts. Mary didn't say, I'm fine, fine, nothing really, nothing, fine, I'm fine. I'm crying because my life got turned upside down. Crying because some things are different, and she wasn't crying because she had a bad hair day or dropped her phone in the toilet or lost her keys. This was legitimately serious. Just in the last six months, I just wrote down some things that she had put her hope and her confidence and trust in something and her world got turned upside down. That's what happens. Ultimately, we're gonna have reason for tears because ultimately, if we put our trust in hope in anything in this life other than Jesus, eventually it's gonna get shaken. Eventually, it's gonna be challenged. Talking in the last few months with somebody who their comfort and their, their stability was their marriage and now it's ending in divorce. Somebody, their job was their stability and, and identity, and now they got suddenly laid off unexpectedly. A financial stability, and all of a sudden, some medical emergencies and some other things have exhausted everything they worked so hard to save. And somebody who was raising their kids a certain way, and the kids have gone direction, and there's no relationship and no contact, and their heart's broken. And somebody who'd been praying for a long time to get pregnant, and they finally got pregnant again, just had their fourth miscarriage and their heart's broken. And There's a lot of loss, there's a lot of pain, and I, I love the fact that Jesus just doesn't come in with happy, quick answers. He doesn't just throw cliches at her. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know, or some dumb thing. He just asks her a question, pulls that out. She's got, I'll tell you why I'm crying. Because Jesus, I've, he changed my life and I was following him and now they killed him and somebody stole the body. That, that's why I'm crying. They've taken my hope away. If you get a chance later, you can look on the inside of your bulletin and there's a little story about Bright Hope English School. We have a, through our relationship with our Bhutanese family in our community of Beaverton here, we have a relationship in India that we work with a school called Bright Hope English School, and there's a little girl, I was there a couple weeks ago, a little girl named Priti, that is her name. And we're gonna share her video testimony soon. She was, she was working as a little girl to support her sick mom and her brothers, and she was working in the tea gardens in the plywood factories, and um, just this beautiful little girl. But when you hear her testimony before she met Jesus, she goes, I would just cry and cry and cry. I would just cry. And I'd think of 
the bills that had to be paid her because she was they're living in a slum but she's trying to keep her brother in school and food on the table and caring for her mom who's sick and it's all on her shoulders and she goes and I would just cry and I would say God why are you not there that's kind of what Mary felt like God's gone see her story now is she met Jesus and if you talk to this little girl I walked away and I felt like a loser spiritually after a half hour talking with her she is a light she just has it's one of the many girls that, that, are, that are part of the school that we get to, to be a part of, but this is the reality. Unless Jesus breaks in, you'll never find him. Unless Jesus reveals himself, it shows that evidence alone, and there's all this empirical or forensic evidence we could bring, we could spend days on apologetics showing the veracity of the resurrection, that it's a factual historical event that took place, and there's all this evidence that supports that. But at the end of the day, it's gonna take more than evidence. It's gonna take an encounter with the risen Jesus. So Jesus comes to her, and I'll finish with this, and he looks at her and he says, Mary, just the mention of her name, she, she knew that voice, he knows everything about her, he knows everything of her story, everything of her journey, and hope is returned, why? Because she figured it out and found Jesus? No, because Jesus called her by name, and he said, I'm the answer to the tears, I'm the answer to the despair, I'm the answer to the hopelessness of the world, and life begins when we respond to the voice of our Savior who calls us by name. Remember when Elizabeth Smart, the young girl from Salt Lake City, was abducted, she was kidnapped. For nine months, she was missing, and one day in Sandy, Utah, a police officer saw this couple, older couple with a girl crossing the street, and he recognized her, and he went up and he began to investigate and inquire. And she kept denying that she was Elizabeth Smart, and she was denying she was wearing a wig, and she was denying that, that they had kidnapped her, and so he pulled her aside and he, he tenderly looked her in the eyes and he said, I know who you are. You're Elizabeth Smart. You've been lost, and I'm gonna take you home. And he pulled out a paper that was a missing person file and showed her a picture on it. She began to cry and she says, if you say it so, then it's so. She had so identified with her abductor, she had so lost a sense of her identity, she no longer knew who she was, so close to home, but so lost. And somebody had to tell her, this is who you are. Because apart from Jesus, I'll never know who I really was made to be. I'll have to carve out my own meaning, my own existence, but my life and meaning and purpose and existence begins when I really respond to the depths of the one who knows me, and Jesus breaks in and calls us by name. He knows who you are. He knows the public and the private. He knows it all. And he says, I'm, so he says, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for something. I'm looking for an experience. I'm looking for an accomplishment. I'm looking for a possession. I'm looking for a relationship. I'm just looking for something. Because he asked that question to us, what are you looking for that's going to answer to the tears? And she falls on her feet and she says, teacher, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, there's this passage that says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you were made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. Interesting, they didn't say, if you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God used Jesus to feed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes or that Jesus walked on water. He's not saying, I want you to believe in a miracle Jesus did. I want you to believe in who Jesus is. He's the resurrection in life. If I believe that, 
It's the answer to my guilt and sorrow. It's the answer to my despair and grief. It's the answer to every issue in life. That's where things pivot. That's where things turn. And one day, we're going to experience, we live in the tension of the now and not yet, but we're beginning to live in light of the reality of the resurrection. We're future people. The, the springtime is breaking forth and that which is one day, summer's coming and it's going to come in its fullness. But it begins by opening your heart. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me if you would. And let me ask you a couple questions as we just respond, just personally, each one of us in our own hearts this morning. You came to church today. Many of you, this is what you do every Sunday. Some of you, this is what you do when you're able. And many of you, maybe this is unique and this is a first time for you. And somebody invited you and offered to come with you or go to dinner afterwards or for whatever reason. Maybe you just drove in and accidentally turned because the police officer was directing people in here and you're here. I don't know what your expectations were, but, but Jesus knew you would be here today. He kind of intersects with our life in those divine appointments, and he calls us by name. And life begins with the opening of our heart. And so let me ask you this question. What, what direction are you running? Are you running to Jesus or away from him? What are you crying about? Basically, where's the, the, the hidden or the public points of questions or frustration or, or disappointment or hurt or pain or brokenness in your life and what are you searching for what do you think is going to answer to that for all eternity what, what do you think the solution is for that and maybe let me ask you this last question will you be like mary will you turn towards jesus will you turn towards him because the bible says that he comes and he just knocks on the door of our heart he doesn't come barreling in grabbing us by the forehead and forcing our attention he comes and he calls us I know you, calls us by name. And maybe you're here today and you want to enter into that life. Maybe you want to open your heart to that Jesus. Not a religion, not a church, but you're, 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 you're opening your heart to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. The Bible says if we believe in our heart, if we believe in our heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he paid it in full, he accomplished what needed to be accomplished, and we say with our mouth, Jesus is Lord you will be saved. And maybe your prayer this morning would be something like this. And where you're seated, maybe you would just respond in these kind of words that you'd say, Jesus, I know that I've missed the mark. I know I've fallen short. And I confess that apart from your grace, I will never be righteous. But I believe, Jesus, that you're the Son of God and that you died on the cross for me. And I thank you for taking my place of death and separation and I believe that you rose from the dead on the third day. And with all my heart, I trust you as my Savior, and I open my heart to believe in you as the resurrection and the life and ask for your salvation. Now I receive it as the free gift that it is. By faith and the strength and the grace that you will give me each day, I want to follow you, and I want to trust you, and I want to walk now in the fullness of what I'm receiving in Jesus' name. Just where you're at, just let that be your response. If that's your heart today, if you're hearing Jesus call your name, saying Mary, maybe saying Mike, maybe saying Sally, maybe saying Ruth, maybe say, he's just calling names today. Just open your hearts and say yes to Jesus. That's where life begins. It doesn't mean you've got all the questions answered or you've got it all figured out. It's just you know that Jesus is greater than any name that can be named, any circumstance that could be experienced. He's greater than that. So Lord, thank you for your joy and life that you bring to us as we trust in you and how authentic and real it is, and we can walk in the newness of it each day as we trust you. Renew us in that day by day. 
as we go, God, let us be witnesses of the resurrection. Let us be testimonies of your living reality in our heart as you live your life through us. All for your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.